read our scripture today, I want to share a bit about our history because this is Pentecost Sunday, and this is also a celebration for the United Methodist Church. We have now experienced 50 years since our merger. Uh, You may not know what that means. (laughs) We have been the Methodist Church for much longer, a couple hundred years, longer than a couple hundred years, but the the excuse me the evangelical united brethren and the methodist episcopal church merged in 1968 to form the united methodist church and we celebrate that and what an appropriate day to celebrate on the birthday of our church and so i have a couple things i want to read from our archives that you could find on the conference website inumc.org It's a good thing for us to remember, and for some of you who are not familiar with Methodist history, to understand. So, this comes straight from the site and addressing the question of why did the EUB and the Methodist Union make good sense? Here it is. The preceding groups that made up the two denominations shared a common heritage of pietism from Germany and fervor of revival from England and doctrinal backgrounds of Armenian and Wesleyan. While early leaders came from different denominational backgrounds, Francis Asbury, if you've heard of Francis Asbury or Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, is originally Anglican of the Church of England. Philip Otterbein, anybody heard of Otterbein, that name? It's a German Reformed Methodist, uh, or not Methodist, German Reformed and influenced by the Mennonites. And then Jacob Albright it was a Lutheran influenced by Methodists. The leaders all shared a zeal of evangelism that transcended their denominational loyalties and ignited their followers. They represented the beginnings of what would be called in history the Second Great Awakening. Methodism was successful primarily among English-speaking people, but there were a number of German-speaking people concentrated primarily in Pennsylvania and the Mid-Atlantic states who were also involved in the awakening. They were influenced by Methodist preaching, but needed pastors who could minister in their own language. Philip Otterbein, who was a friend of Francis Asbury, helped to form a group known as the United Brethren in Christ, while Joseph Albright helped to form a group known as the Evangelical Association. Both churches were patterned after Methodist doctrine and polity, how the church is organized, and in this case, with bishops. For a number of years, both the evangelicals and the United Brethren reflected their German heritage and ministered largely to German-speaking people migrating to America. As the 19th century progressed, both groups, along with the Methodists, began to direct a religious culture influenced by revivalism and perhaps best described as American evangelism. It was soon realized that what groups held in common transcended what separated them. That's a nice notion, huh? It was soon realized that what groups held in common transcended what separated them. This commonality led to early mergers, and in 1939, the Methodist Episcopal Church, the Church of the North, and the Methodist Episcopal Church South, and the Methodist Protestant Church united in a new denomination called the Methodist Church. 
1946, the United Brethren in Christ Church united with the Evangelical Church to form the Evangelical United Brethren Church, or what we call the EUB. Are you remembering all these church names? <laughs> so you're doing better than, than I am. But even at that time, it goes on to say, there were persons who began to say to each other, let's take the logical next step and unite with the Methodists. By the 1960s, the time was right. And in 1968, because you know it takes us a while to make, make big decisions, they did. They merged. And here we are. Now, a particular thing that I want to highlight in the merger is a step forward we took as a, a denomination toward inclusion, toward a growth, which will come into the sermon later. But I want to lift this up. This is a proud moment of history that ended some unproud moments in our history. So this particular section you can find on the conference site is called the EUB-Methodist Union and the Central Jurisdiction. Now, we are the church, Darlington United Methodist. There are several churches around us that make us into a cluster, and we do things with our cluster that you know of. And we are part of the West District, and I think there are there are several, nine districts for Indiana. We have the north, the south, the east, the west, the southwest, the southeast, uh, north, central. Anyway, John Groves, as you all know, is our district superintendent. And then we're all part of the Indiana Conference. And then the Indiana Conference, along with conferences in Michigan and Illinois and others, are part of the jurisdiction that we're a part of. And I want you to have a, an understanding of, when I say central jurisdiction from our reading, what I'm talking about. A big group, big section. So it's written. United Methodists across the Indiana Conference will observe the 50th anniversary of the unification of the Evangelical United Brethren and Methodist churches held in 1968. One of the major developments that came about as the result of the merger was the elimination of the central jurisdiction of the Methodist church. The central jurisdiction helped in organizing black Methodist churches that existed alongside but separate from the main body of predominantly white conferences in the United States. This arrangement came about as a result of the 1939 merger of the Methodist Episcopal Church, the Methodist Episcopal Church South, and the Methodist Protestant Church. In the days of segregation, the central jurisdiction was seen as a convenient compromise in the plan of unifying the two churches to make the merger more palatable to the concerns of the South. Let that sink in. A convenient compromise to make the merger more palatable to the concerns of the South. It goes on. The Methodists were the first denomination to successfully reach and Christianize blacks in America, both slave and free. Methodist camp meetings were likely the first institution in America where blacks and whites could congregate on more or less equal terms. But racial injustice was, and is, hard to overcome. As blacks were made to feel like second-class citizens, though they were brothers and sisters of the church, two primarily black groups withdrew from the Methodist Episcopal Church to form new denominations, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME, in the New York area, and the African Methodist Church, Zion, in the Philadelphia area. 
Despite these losses, blacks still made up 20% of the Methodist Episcopal membership by 1820. In 1870, the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, CME, another black Methodist denomination, was formed by freed slaves, launched with 67,000-plus members. The denomination grew to 366-plus thousand by 1922. By 1964, four years prior to this merger we're celebrating, African-American Methodist membership totaled 373,000 plus. Since the unification of the EUB and the Methodists would require extensive restructuring, it was only logical to reevaluate the inequity of the central jurisdiction model and move to full inclusion of black churches in the newly formed geographical conferences. In the early 1960s, black churches of the Lexington Conference had already merged into the Indiana Conferences. In other parts of the country, the churches were merged into the geographical conferences in the years between 1968 and 1972. It may have taken us a while, but we got there. And we still have a long way to go. Amen? Let us take a moment to breathe. I threw a lot out you there. We're going to hear from the Word, and we're going to consider then what Pentecost means for us today. Our first reading comes from Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. Ezekiel the prophet writes to the exiled Israel and says, The Lord's power overcame me, and while I was in the Lord's spirit, he led me out and set me down in the middle of a certain valley. It was full of bones. He led me through them all around, and I saw that there were a great many of them on the valley floor, and they were very dry. He asked me, human one, can these bones live again? I said, Lord God, only you know. He said to me, Prophecy over these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the Lord's word. The Lord God proclaims to these bones, I am about to put breath in you, and you will live again. I will put sinews on you, place flesh on you, and cover you with skin. When I put breath in you and you come to life, you will know that I am the Lord. I prophesy just as I was commanded. There was a great noise as I was prophesying, then a great quaking, and the bones came together, bone by bone. When I looked, suddenly there were sinews on them. The flesh appeared, and then they were covered over with skin, but there was still no breath in them. He said to me, prophecy to the breath, prophecy, human one. Say to the breath, the Lord God proclaims, come from the four winds, breath. Breathe into these dead bodies and let them live. I prophesied just as he commanded me. When the breath entered them, they came to life and stood on their feet, an extraordinarily large company. He said to me, human one, these bones are the entire house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely finished. So now prophesy and say to them, the Lord God proclaims, I'm opening your graves. I will raise you up from your graves, my people, and I will bring you to Israel's fertile land. 
You will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, my people. I will put my breath in you and you will live. I will plant you on your fertile land and you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. This is what the Lord says. The word of God for the people of God. Ooh, powerful. The next reading comes from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When Pentecost Day arrived, the disciples were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. There were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all the people who are speaking Galileans, every one of them? How then can each of us hear them speaking in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the regions of Libya, bordering Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs, we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our own languages. They were all surprised and bewildered. Some asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them, saying, they're full of new wine. Peter stood with the other eleven apostles. He raised his voice and declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem, know this. Listen carefully to my words. These people aren't drunk, as you suspect. After all, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Rather, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young will see visions. Your elders will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be changed into darkness and the moon will be changed into blood before the great and spectacular day of the Lord. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's a day of celebration. And I... I had asked for anyone to share any thoughts they had about this kind of celebration, because some of you have been coming here for 50 years. Some of you haven't. So I asked both groups to share. Tell what this church means. What do you see in the church today? What do you hope for in the church for the future? And I got some responses I want to share. And the first came from Denise, and she says, I'm just reading as she wrote, my Methodist story began when I was a young child. Mom and Dad would load us up on Sunday and head to Crawfordsville Trinity United Methodist Church. It was the highlight of our week. All eight of us would share the morning with singing and the preacher talking and reminding us to love each other. Then home we went for pancakes. (laughs) When summer rolled around, we looked forward to vacation Bible school. We would have a great week with all the kids. 
Our church was an extension of our home. The people were loving and always cheering us on as we grew. When I left home, I did not attend as much. Then I stopped. Bad decision. Life got out of control. Then I got turned back around, and I started back to church. Many of the same people were there with arms open. When Dan, Sam, and I became a family, we started coming here. Another home. And now Sam and his family joining us. I am blessed, exclamation, exclamation. Our family, family here, each and every one, makes this church a loving place of worship to come to on Sundays. As we move forward, when Joe and his family carry on their journey, I'm sure we will be blessed again. The Lord hears our prayers, and this church is overflowing with prayer warriors. Look around. His healing and love is very evident. Thank you, Lord. And thank you, Denise, for sharing. And Paula, who has just recently become a member in the last couple of years, she says, my family has always attended a Methodist church. Matt's did as well. When we lived in Indianapolis, we tried many different churches of different size and denominations to find one that we liked. We always went back to a Methodist church. When we moved back, we knew we needed to go to a to church, and because we like the Methodist church as best, we tried Darlington United Methodist Church first. This church is so welcoming without being overwhelming. It is small enough that everyone knows each other. Not only do they know each other, everyone genuinely loves each other. We pray together, cry together, and celebrate together. DUMC is an extended family, and we cannot think of anywhere else we want to be on Sunday morning. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Paula. You know, I, I love the Methodist Church. I was born and raised in the United Methodist Church. I have found my home here. Um, and we have a long history of following the Spirit's lead in our denomination. We, we have a long history of division due to resistance to the Holy, Holy Spirit's leading. We're human. As much as we have the presence of God within our body, we are human. We continue to adapt and grow as we are led, we have seen past injustices corrected, like the central jurisdiction. No longer are African Americans shut out of full membership, not only equal, but together. No longer are women denied full rights. And I have full faith we will continue to undo the divisions that we have created. You know, our immediate future as a denomination is unclear to us, but it's perfectly clear to God. This is God's church before it is any of ours. And knowing that, I do not worry. Whatever bumps and bruises are to come, they will lead us forward into the church we were always created and meant to be. I'm proud to be a part of this congregation. The openness this group offers is powerful, and it is changing lives. The support and encouragement is truly Spirit-led, and it is revealing the light of Jesus Christ in this community that is in need. The love you have for one another is evident to any and all who have ever come through those doors in my experience. Thank you for giving me this experience of the United Methodist Church with you all. Let us pray. Lord God, I just thank you for the way that you're with us. 
and the way that we've come here today to hear your word, to celebrate Pentecost, to understand what it means and how you're calling us forward. So be with me now. Speak through me in spite of me. Allow what we hear and what we meditate on to be truly guided by you. Lord, may all that we do be pleasing in your sight. You alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Pentecost. It's Pentecost Sunday. And Pentecost has a great deal of history. A great deal. We, we often don't talk about it because we only celebrate it once a year and it's the only time we bring out the red garments around the sanctuary. The only time. Um, which it's, it makes it special, I suppose. But let's talk about the history a bit. We've covered a lot of history of the United Methodist Church. Let's talk about the church, the universal church. It originates, Pentecost, all the way back into the wilderness when Israel had left their bondage in Egypt in the days of Moses. Fifty days, fifty penta, after crossing the Red Sea, Israel came to Sinai and received the law in the form of ten words, which we've turned into ten commandments and made them into paragraphs sometimes. On that day, Moses ascended the mountain, and then... 40 days later, descended with divine truth, and the word of God was given in their language in those 10 words. The word of God, the truth of God, was given to them in their language in a way they could understand it. Last week, we celebrated that Jesus ascended into heaven in flesh and blood, the first bit of earthly creation to reside in the heavenly realm. And then, 40 days later, as Luke writes it, the presence of Jesus, the advocate who reminds us of Jesus' teaching, descends the first bit of heavenly creation to reside in the earthly realm with us, given to us in a way we can understand in the very depths of our souls. The Spirit wants to sit upon Jesus at his baptism. Now the Spirit comes to all who proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. Heaven is within us around us, empowering us. And when we're on our good days, it's uniting us. The disciples were gathered in one place. And all the people there from all over the world were gathered in Jerusalem and they all heard their own language. There was unification. That's what the Spirit does. It fulfills that proclamation that Paul lifts up from the Scriptures in Romans, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, unified, one. This process began at Pentecost from our reading today. The festival of harvest is how they used to celebrate it. The offering of first fruits, first fruits of the harvest to remind them that God provides just like God provided on Sinai with the holy words. And it also looked forward to the great harvest of all the earth when all people who call upon God's name will receive life in the fullest. And this all gets wrapped up in this story that we find in Acts at the great day of Pentecost. And no, they didn't wake up that day and decide to create a new name for the day for something that they didn't know was going to happen yet. It was the day of Pentecost that took them all the way to the wilderness, walked them to Sinai, took them through every single season when God provided. And then on that day, 
God provided the Spirit. It was told in such a way in the Gospel of Luke that we would remember the deeper history to know what it means for us on that day of Pentecost with the apostles in that house when Peter proclaimed and what it still means to us today when we call upon that same Spirit. And while we don't always remember this story and we have not always remembered our charge, we have to understand. We've got to understand what it is that, that keeps us from being who it is we're called to be. You see, where God seeks to draw us forward towards the day when all things will be made right, the world seeks to drag us backward as if the good days are in the past, as if somehow we got to go backward to become great again. Where God seeks to draw us together to be one with one another as sisters and brothers, as the great we, the world seeks to divide us and create an attitude of us and them. Where God is calling people of every category we create to differentiate ourselves, we think our categories are sufficient enough to say no to those who have been called. And I can tell you that I just graduated from Garrett with a number of beautiful and amazing people who have been called. But because some of the labels that others want to put upon them, they want to say they're not called. That is the world's thinking. It's time for us to remember our story and to know the Spirit's thinking. This United Methodist Church, not unlike many other denominations of these people I graduated with, we are in yet another interesting time. A time when we have to decide, are we going to focus on what unifies us, or are we going to focus on what separates us? Are we going to focus on what the Spirit is leading us into, calling us forward, more inclusive to the day where all are united, or are we going to resist? We are being called to stop condemning one another, to look beyond our human-made categories, to be more inclusive of those who God has created and called. Will we follow? Will we say yes to the way forward? As we consider where we have come from as a people, as a denomination, as a congregation, as we consider following the charge we are given to proclaim the good news, I'd like us to consider John Wesley's instruction for our singing from 1761. So please open your United Methodist hymnal, and the page that's marked a lowercase v-i-i, a lowercase Roman numeral 7, and it is just about seven pages in from the front cover. This is about singing, but this is so appropriate for what it is to proclaim our faith. So we're going to use the metaphor, and we're going to use John Wesley's incredible instructions for singing. Have you ever seen this? No? No? Has anyone ever seen this before? You, you hold the hymnal every Sunday, and yet we turn past this beautiful directions for singing found on, on Roman numeral 7s. Everybody have it? Because I want, you to, I want you to read along with me. I'm going to read all seven of them, and then I want to reflect on it and what it means for our faith. I mean, this is, we're getting, you're getting immersed in Methodism today. Are, are you liking it? Here we go. Directions for singing. John Wesley writes, number one, learn these tunes before you learn any others. Afterwards, learn as many as you please. <laughs> number two, 
sing these tunes exactly as they are printed here, without altering or mending them at all. And if you have learned to sing them otherwise, unlearn it as soon as you can. (laughs) I love it. Number three, sing all. That's a complete sentence. Sing all. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up and you will find it a blessing. Number four, sing heartily and with a good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. Feeling convicted a little bit? Again, we're singing songs and talking about that, but we're thinking faith. Number five, sing modestly. Do not bawl so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation, that you may not destroy the harmony but strive to unite your voices together so as to make one clear, melodious sound. Number six, sing in time. Whatever time is sung, be sure to keep it. Do not run before nor stay behind it, but attend close to the leading voices and move therewith exactly as you can and take care not to sing too slow. This drawling way naturally steals on all who are lazy, And it is high time to drive it out from us and sing all our tunes just as quick as we did at first. Number seven, above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing God more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound but offered to God continually. So, so shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve here and reward you when he cometh in the clouds of heaven. From John Wesley's Select Hymns, 1761. Pretty amazing, huh? We think back across our rich history as a denomination, as a congregation, a plethora of voices that have sung, that have witnessed to their faith that have proclaimed Jesus Christ, that have been empowered and spoken out, that have called people together, that have revealed the love of Christ. We are at our best, and we always have been, when we are united and in sync with where the Spirit is leading us. We may not all live our faith by exactly the same notes, but when we are in harmony with one another, The diversity of our stories, of our faith, it brings richness and fullness that we could never bring on our own. So in the spirit of Wesley's instructions for singing, let me offer you these instructions for how we are to go and move forward in the leading of the Spirit. First, let us learn of our faith and spend time reflecting upon our story as a denomination, a congregation, you as a family, and you as an individual. What has God done for you? And what has God done for us? Learn your story. And then, number two, tell that story exactly as it is. Don't alter it. Trust that your story is good enough. Don't try to measure up. Don't try to fancy it. 
Just tell it as it is. Number three, and let us all be telling our story. Let us be united in our effort. Let us sing of our faith to a world hurting for direction and hope. Let us sing on behalf of God, who is oftentimes misrepresented as being full of condemnation and anger. Let us tell our story. And number four, let us sing with hearty courage. Let us not be bashful telling our story of faith. And also, let us sing modestly of our faith, not trying to raise our voice or our story beyond each other, but let us remain united. Number six, let us sing in time. Don't rush. Don't hesitate. But by being prayerful, follow the rhythm of the Holy Spirit's guidance, the presence of Jesus Christ with us today. And last of all, number seven, above all, tell your faith, live your story, sing from the deepest and most authentic part of yourself. Sing from who you are and sing for the glory of God, knowing the Spirit will give you all you need, will help you find the words, and it's God and the Spirit that changes and transforms lives when we simply respond and move the way forward as God directs us. Can we do this, church? Yes. Yes, we can. So let us go and do and let us be in the name of Jesus Christ and in the presence and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.